Let me ask you to take your copy of God's Word and join me at 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. I just want to read one, one verse this morning. And the focus really before we read verse 16 is where we're headed. 1 Timothy 3 verse 16. The focus this morning really is on what's so important about the incarnation of Christ. It's a doctrine we discuss often. Uh, for those who've walked with Christ for some time know that it is a central concept and something that, that we have to hold very dearly, something that uh, has ramifications and reaches into a lot of other areas in life. But I think it's helpful for us to stop and ask what's so important about Jesus actually becoming a man. It indicates that, of course, He was... Very God of very God, it had been and has been for all eternity. But at a certain point in time, He became a man. So what? What's so important? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I want you to look at 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. This is God's Word. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God abides forever and ever. Would you pray with me? God, we ask that You would speak to our hearts now. We look at this small portion of Scripture and Lord, as our brother has already prayed, we pray that there would be great change to our hearts and to our lives even now. We would ask that by the power of Your Spirit, You would speak to our hearts in such a way that we would grasp Your Word and then that Your Word would grasp us. And that we would be changed. In fact, changed in such a way that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. That's our desire. Father, we pray for Spirit-filled preaching and Spirit-filled listening that in fact we would be made like unto Jesus. For we pray in His name. Amen. Okay, so what is so important about the virgin birth? It's something that we see all over the Scriptures. We uh, have seen this concept begin to be teased out in the earliest pages of God's Word. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And, and the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. And so we anticipate that this great gospel will ultimately be accomplished by someone who's going to descend from Eve. In Isaiah chapter 7, a verse we probably heard or at least read over the course of the last month or so, we read that a virgin would conceive and would bear a son and his name would be called Emmanuel. Matthew would pick up on that verse and quote it and add this. His name would be called Emmanuel, uh, uh, but uh, Matthew would add that he would be called Jesus, that he would be saved, uh, that he would save his people from their sins. You know, there are a lot of profound things in this world, are there not? Everything from a sunset, everything from uh, the human body and the ability actually to, uh, to transfer vision into things that we ultimately remember. What is a memory in the human brain? That's something that blows my mind. Lots of profound things in the world. 
beautiful and profound as God becoming a man. That, that the infinite is shoehorned into a finite body. That the Creator takes the form of one of His creatures. And, and not merely one of His creatures. In fact, He takes the form of one of the creatures who is in full rebellion against Him when He takes it. It's an amazing thing. And of course, it's dealt with all over the Scriptures. And it is our focus for... On this one. But what is so important about this particular concept? I want you to look at 1 Timothy 3.16 and I want us to work through uh, the verbiage here just a moment before we come and make um, some application. I want you to notice the use of this word mystery. Here in the New King James Version, the text reads, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, when the Scriptures use the word mystery, it's not talking about something that's uh, ethereal or ephemeral or has uh, unclear edges to it. The scriptural meaning of the word mystery is something that has been previously unknown and now is known. It was previously not really understood and now is revealed completely. And this is the case with the Incarnation. Again, starting in those earliest pages of the Old Testament and developed, we're looking through the glass darkly and finally in the New Testament we have this truth that is revealed. That's the essence of the mystery that's here. But back up a few words in verse 16 and notice this phrase, and without controversy. You may be reading a version that puts this uh, this way, by common confession by common confession that there is this great mystery. In other words, um, this great mystery uh, is something that is held commonly by the church. It's actually seen by the Apostle Paul here as bedrock for the church's witness. And when he says by common confession, Paul's not talking about um, necessarily what we are saying, but rather the foundational beliefs upon which we ultimately stand. Let's put it another way. When he says by common confession, in understanding this as bedrock maturities, he's understanding that it is the believer to be committed to this mystery. All believers to be committed to this mystery. What is the mystery? Well, it's these six lines that are contained uh, in the rest of the verse. Beginning with God was manifested in the flesh. Let me, let me address these six lines uh, corporately, if I may. In your Bible, they're probably all indented. Do you see that? They're all pushed in just a little bit. And it indicates to us that this is what Bible scholars would call a liturgical passage. In the first century, these uh, were probably uh, seen as either a confession of faith, just like we, conf we confessed our faith together using the Shorter Catechism this morning, that this was a, a commonly held confession of faith that would be used in a worship service, or it could have been something that was sung. Could you imagine these words being sung? I should. I know these would be beautiful words, and laden with content that we would say, yes, this is what I believe, and this is so glorious that I want to sing this before the Lord. We don't know if it's confession or if it was sung, but either way, uh, what glorious worship this liturgical passage would have been. Now, it is packed with theology. 
But as soon as we use the word theology, sometimes we say, oh, that's the dry and dusty stuff. I don't know about that. I don't know that I want that. But I want you to see what, what Paul's insight into uh, this uh, content-laden information is actually for. Would you turn back to 1 Timothy 1? Would you do that? Just turn back a, a page or two. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And notice verse 5. Paul's introducing this book. And uh, in it, he says, For the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a conscience, from a sincere faith. Again, another version would put this uh, phrase this way. Not now the purpose of the commandment is love, but it would say the goal of our instruction is love. Isn't that a great way to translate that? I think that's very helpful. In other words, the entire book of 1 Timothy, in fact, the entire book of the Bible, book the Bible, is that we would gain this instruction. The goal of the instruction is that we would love, and love from a sincere heart, love from a pure conscience. In other words, when you turn back to 1 Timothy 3.16, and you're looking at this great mystery that it's held by common confession, it is so that the, the instruction would change you and cause you to love. That's exactly what John Paul prayed as we uh, were worshiping earlier, that we are here to be changed. We are here to encounter God through His Word, and that's the intent of this passage. So when we begin to talk about theology, it's not as though we get to, to sort of shut off and say, Ooh, I don't want to go there. That's too heavy. But rather we say, yes and amen, Lord, teach me so that I, in fact, would receive this instruction that has a goal to cause me to love. A goal to make me more faithful to my calling to you. Okay, so now we're back to the incarnation as it's revealed to us in verse 16. Look back at 1 Timothy 3, 16. This first line says God was manifested in the flesh. Now why use the word manifested? Why not say that God was revealed or God became uh, flesh? He says God was revealed in the flesh. What he's doing by using the word revealed is indicating to us that God existed before the revelation in the flesh. In other words, Jesus had always existed. It existed eternally long before Bethlehem ever occurred, He was manifested in the flesh. God was manifested in the flesh. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 says this, that God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. God sent forth His Son. It implies that the Son had already existed. It implies His deity. It implies His Eternality. All right, all of that by way of background in uh, introducing to us this concept, God was manifested in the flesh. So what? What's so important uh, about all of this? What's so important to you in your daily life that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin and actually became a man? Why is that so important in your daily life? Well, there are numerous reasons, and uh, I want to deal with one um, this morning. And uh, you may find this a little unusual until I have an opportunity to explain. What's so important about the incarnation of Jesus becoming flesh? And it's this. It affects deeply your view of the Scripture. 
it affects deeply your view of the Scripture. Let me start with a few questions. If I were to ask you, is the Bible authoritative, what would you say? Is the Bible authoritative? Yes. I would agree with that. And, and, and when we say authoritative, we're saying that when the Bible speaks, we're supposed to obey it. We know we struggle with it. We, we're all sinners and we all fail God and all fail the, the, the truth that He presents in His Word. But being authoritative, we're supposed to obey what God's Word says and believe what it teaches. Another question. All of it. All of the Scriptures are we to obey and to believe that it's true. Every word, every concept. Let me back up to the Incarnation. Does the Bible teach that Jesus was born of a virgin? Yes. Is the Bible truthful when it teaches that He was born of a virgin and became flesh? Yes. Can the Bible be trusted... At that point, when it says that Jesus was born of a virgin, that He had existed eternally before His conception and His ultimate birth in Bethlehem, can, can we trust it at that point? Yes. Can we trust the Bible at all other points as well? And the answer is yes. Now, in days gone by, there have been those who said, wow, I mean, there's some things in the Bible that I just can't, mm, I can't go there. Whether it's creation by divine fiat in six days, or, or whether it's the miracle. How can, how can the Israelites cross uh, the Red Sea? And you've heard the stories where uh, uh, theologians who couldn't really embrace the authority of the Scriptures would say, I don't know about people drowning in the Red Sea. Maybe it was the Reed Sea and it was a, a foot deep. These kinds of things. Or I don't know about people being raised from the dead and I just can't go there. In three days, somebody lived in a great fish and then was spat out on some beach. I don't know that I can go there. So there were those who denied the full authority of the Scripture. In fact, they denied the authority of Scripture at all. Now, in our day, that's not so popular. What is popular is people who take a softer sort of view and they would say, well, the Scriptures are true and I believe in the essence of the truth of the Bible. But what about all of it? And so, ah, I just can't go there. You follow me? And here's what happens is, is it seems like a, a gentle and a softer view of things when we say, I, I believe in the essence of the truth of the Bible. I just, I just can't go everywhere to every word, to every phrase, to every sentence that is laid down in Holy Writ. I'm not sure that I can, can go that far. They say, of course the Bible is true, but not throughout. Now it sounds wise, it sounds kinder and gentler and, and more acceptable, but in reality, my friends, it's just dangerous. Because we get on a slope that can lead us astray. You see, once you give up the authority of the Bible as a whole, it's nearly impossible to resist the slide into losing the authority of the Bible in every area. 
Uh, let me kind of walk you through this. So first it starts out with a very high view of Scripture and a very high view of the authority of Scripture. They've been taught at their mother's knee. They've been taught in a good Sunday school. But certain things begin to happen. They <clears throat> go through life and they begin to encounter questions where it's like, wow, I'm not sure how to answer that question from a biblical point of view. In fact, I, I'm not sure that the Scriptures answer that question. And so there's the beginning of doubt and wonder in uh, certain areas that come along. Questions are asked and they're hard to answer. And we don't want to look foolish in the eyes of peers or perhaps a professor. And we begin to capitulate. We begin to give some ground even if we don't verbalize that ground. And then there's a retreat from the full authority of the Bible to a view that is back to the essence of biblical truth. I believe the Bible is true in matters of faith and practice, but I don't know about faith. I'm sorry. The Bible is true in faith and practice, but I don't know about science and history. So there's a step back. There's a step back from full authority. And there's comfort in yielding only in history and in science, isn't there? Because at the end of the day, where I'm living is, is I'm living in faith and practice. And I believe the Bible is true when it comes to faith and practice. And I'm not really living, unless I'm a historian or a scientist, I'm not living in the realm of history and the science world. But realize this, once that authority, that full authority is yielded, well, then there begins to be real slippage. Once it's yielded in all areas except for faith and for practice, then the next step is to yield in practice. Well, we still believe the Christian doctrines, but in how we live and how we actually practice our faith is not really bound to what the Bible says because, after all, we don't really believe that the Scriptures are authoritative when it comes to history and science. In other words, we have precedent for slippage. We slip in, in history and science, so we're slipping now in practice. But think about this just for a moment. Once you slip in history and science, and once you slip in practice, what's left? Well, faith. The core. And let me tell you, all this slope, there have been many who have slipped, and they're just down at the bottom. And, and, and there's nothing left but but a, but an agnostic. I, I, I just don't know. I just don't know if this is really true, if it's if it's all true. And it all began with giving a little breath. Let me tell you a quick story. I heard. I heard this told, I didn't hear it straight from Tim Keller, it was told about him, about people, uh, students who had gone off to college and they were coming home uh, for the first time after having been away at college. And it was fall break or Thanksgiving or Christmas in that very first year. And people were coming home and they were saying to uh, Dr. Keller's uh, staff member who dealt with college students, and these kids were coming home and saying, I just don't know if the Scriptures really are trustworthy. I just really don't know if the Scriptures really can be taken to the bank. And it was uncanny the number of students who were coming home on that 
uh, at that event, the, the fall break or the Thanksgiving, the first time back, and expressing this to their pastoral staff. And so this minister began to probe. What he found is, is that when these kids had gone off to school, they had become sexually active. And what was happening is, is they were having to take their view, remember that's what I was saying to begin with, the incarnation affects your view of the Scripture. They were adjusting their view of the Bible to make their, faith, their practice fit. They were adjusting their view of their faith so that their practice now would fit. To the point that I'm living in such a way and doing some certain things that to hold this view of the Scripture makes me feel really guilty about this. So what I'm going to do is not change this. I'm going to adjust my view of Scripture. Do you see the slippage? And these students, one after another, got, got on this um, uh, slippery slope. And they, they said, certainly some giving of ground at, at first, certainly that's safe and even wise. And makes me, makes me able to, to sort of live with the rest of the world. Certainly that's a good thing, isn't it? And what they were ending up and doing in a very rapid rate, finding themselves in a very agnostic position. I don't know if this is really true. In other words, their adjustment on their view of Scripture was causing them to wonder if in fact Jesus Christ could really save them. Do you see the importance of our view of, of really... Uh, a myriad of theological points and the impact they have on our view of Holy Scripture. That's what's so important. Well, let, let, let's, let's think about the incarnation just a bit. Let's say for the sake of argument that you could, that you could capitulate in the area of science and history. Uh, or, or for that matter that you could give ground in the area of doctrine particularly in the incarnation the question then becomes how would you tell the difference between the two areas science and history and uh, a theological point of faith practice how would you tell the difference between the two because what we want to do is do we say well I'm not really living in science and history I'm living in faith and practice how would we tell the difference between the two and here's the issue. Is that really these two areas are welded together and are interwoven and frankly won't come apart. Because you see our, our, our uh, faith and our practice is historical. In other words, when Jesus came to earth, when God revealed Himself in the person of Jesus, He did it in space and time, didn't it? In other words, He revealed Him as a man. This, this is exactly why Jesus came to earth. Why God said, okay, I want to reveal Myself. I want to, to design salvation's plan through a man who is also My Son, who is God. But He... It was a man who was born in a specific time. We believe, I don't know, 4 B.C. or so. And in a specific place, I suppose his conception took place in Nazareth, and they traveled the 70, 80 miles to Nazareth. 
uh, to Bethlehem, um, and he's born there. And so if you say, ah, the Bible's not true in terms of history of science, well, our history and our science and the Scripture is interwoven with our faith and our practice. We can't get them apart here. Here's another issue as well. If, if we're going to put ourselves in a position to say, okay, this, this aspect of the Scripture is true and authoritative, and this is not. If we put ourselves in that position, then who is the final arbiter of our faith and practice. Now, it's supposed to be the Lord through His Word. But if we're sitting above His Word and saying, this part's true and this part's not, then what we've done is we've reversed the order. We've said, ooh, I'm the arbiter. I'm saying this is true, and I'm saying this is not. With what God does in His words, He says, this is all true. I've made it easy for you. You don't have to pick and choose, and you don't have to struggle through that. It's all true for you to embrace and to obey. You see, God has given us His Word that we would bow before it, that we would say yes and amen. That we would not have to work through it and find the truth. You know what? That's one of the greatest things that encourages me about my Christian faith is that I don't have to look for the truth in God's Word. I will frequently tell the story of uh, being in another church many years ago. And the pastor, when he stood to read the sermon text, he said this. He said, listen for the Word of God. Listen as though what he might read in the next few minutes, some of what he might read might not be the Word of God. Now it would be in, in the book called the Bible, but it would not be the binding Word of God. So you listen for it and you find it in there. And I'm so glad that God has not left that to me to figure that out. What a scary thing. What a scary thing. You see, the importance of the Incarnation is that in fact, it would affect our view of the Scripture and that it would draw us up and say, God, You have revealed Yourself through the Lord Jesus Christ and through Your Word and it's all true and it's all authoritative. Thank You for that. Let me give you several um, applications to this when it comes to the Incarnation and its effect on our view of Scripture. Why, why then did Jesus take on human flesh? Well, first of all, what He did, He did this so that, that God could know us experientially. And therefore, fully sympathize in our needs. This is what's so special about Jesus being able to be humble. And be heartbroken. This is what's so significant when Jesus comes to a funeral and He cries. It's what's so significant when his heart is moved. The, the, the Greek is his innards were moved. And what's so important about that is that Jesus comes to earth as a man so that, that he might know the very issues that you go through and know how you go through them. The disappointments, uh, frankly, the excitements and the joys as well. 
But Jesus did that so that he would know that experientially. How often do we quote Hebrews 4, 15? For we have not a great high priest who cannot be touched by our feelings of infirmity, but was tempted in all points like as we yet without sin. The Greek there has two negatives. For we have not a great high priest who cannot be touched. And the idea is there, in the hands of the Holy Spirit, the two negatives are meant to be a very strong positive. We do have a sympathetic, great high priest who can be touched by our feelings of infirmity. Isn't that great? I love that. There's a second reason why uh, Jesus took human flesh. And it's because he, he did it to show us the glory of God in a, a form we could grasp. I want you to think about... <clears throat> I want you to consider encountering God Himself. Maybe it's it's like Moses did at the burning bush. Or uh, the still small voice. Or one of these other forms that you see in Scripture. And when people encountered God, they were undone. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among the people of unclean lips. And why did Isaiah conclude that? Because he was in the very presence, the unmitigated presence of God. And so what God does is He says, okay, I'm going to take a human form, but in so doing, I'm going to reveal not only God, but His glory in a form you can get. John 1, verse 14. John Paul was right at it in his prayer. And the Word became flesh, and we beheld His what? His glory. The Word became flesh, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father. We're beholding the glory of God. In John 14, Jesus said, If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. This revelation of who God was and ultimately His glory. In John 1, in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who was in the bosom of the Father has declared Him. In other words, what verse 18 is saying is, is that Jesus declares the Father. The, the, the literal uh, Greek here is, is that Jesus exegetes the Father. He explains the Father so that you can get Him. Now, regrettably, none of us actually saw Jesus in life. Well, what an amazing thing to hear Jesus preach. What a glorious thought. <clears throat> but you do have the inerrant Word of God, which Peter says is better than actually seeing Jesus as an eyewitness. So that you would behold His glory. My friends, that's why, that's why you... Want a relationship with Jesus so that you may behold the glory of God in a form you can actually get, as opposed to just merely being blown away by the glory of God. A third application would be this: is that Jesus became man in order to die for our sins. What an incredible thought! That, that God would so set up salvation's plan that the God-man would die. And die for you. Die in your place. We all, we all deserve that because of our sin. And, and we, need a, we need a rescue. We need a Savior. And Jesus is the one and He's died in our place. But He couldn't do that until He took human flesh. 
see that's the gospel. In a few minutes when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, um, I'm going to want you to think about some things. In fact, I want you to think about three things as you hold the elements. I want you to think about the covenant that God made with you. If you're a believer here today, and I want you to, to think about the covenant that, that you have entered into with God, that God established and that God drew you into. Then ask yourself, am I keeping covenant? And specifically with regard to, do I see the full authority of Scripture and am I bowing the knee to all of Scripture and do I rejoice in it? The other thing I want you to think about is, is when you hold the elements, I want you to think about how much Jesus loved you. Because you hold in your hands bread and wine, and in your hands you behold those elements that symbolize His body and His blood. You say, this, this is how much He loved me. Who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. He loved me. This also is the cause of my sin. If, if salvation could have come at a cheaper price, certainly God would have established that. But He didn't. He said it would be in the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. That's why He came in flesh. That's why it's so important. I hope that you'll embrace that and that that truth will embrace you form you under the image of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your grace. We thank You for Your mercy, for Your kindness, for Your nearness to us in the person of the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, we know that You have returned to heaven and are sitting at the Father's right hand. And... Uh, Oh, Father, how we praise You for Your goodness. Lord, we pray that these deep truths, that they would be contemplated and that they would be hidden in our hearts and that through them we might be changed. Lord, that we would be careful not to be sleepy in the face of these truths, that we would not be swept away by the current of today's thinking, but that we would realize that You have communicated to us Your holy will what do the Scriptures mainly teach to us? What we are to believe concerning You and the duties that You require of us. May we be found faithful, we pray in Jesus' name.